In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, I don't know about you, but when you think about Lent, um, probably a lot comes to mind, and here we are, the second Sunday in Lent, about a week and a half uh, into this uh, church season of preparing ourselves for Easter, and, and I realized something that I think I already knew, but I, I should say I realized it again this week, that when I talk about Lent, I often talk about it as a journey. And obviously what made me think about it this week was the readings about taking up your cross and and carrying it. And even as we just sang uh, in that hymn, this theme of taking up your cross and and journeying on with your cross. And it's a biblical image, and it's one that is not something that we think about just in Lent, uh, but it's almost a disposition and attitude towards the Christian life, if you will. But as I was reflecting on it uh, this week, it it surprised me how often I talk about Lent as a journey, that I think and frame my own Lenten experience as a journey, as a I'm going to a place, I'm moving towards a destination. And, and that destination, of course, is, is Holy Week, and ultimately it's the crucifixion, and then, thanks be to God, the resurrection. And, and then it's, it's like we get into the Easter season, and like literally I, I shift my mental landscape, and I don't think of Easter as a journey to Ascension or Pentecost, but I think of Lent as a journey. And then I confessed last week, if that's the right word, to being stuck in a Lenten rut the past number of years. I tend to return back to the same text to reflect on again and again, and I mentioned that that was uh, Thomas Akempis's Imitation of Christ, and this year I've added uh, the Confessions of Augustine into it, which is also a journey, but it's Herbert, my favorite poet, George Herbert, whose feast day is actually just a few days away that I spend a lot of time reflecting on in Lent, and, and uh, as I notice each year, my, my, my book of George Herbert's poetry keeps getting filled up and filled up, and this week as I was almost just doing a very Augustinian thing, which is opening the book and pointing to a poem and hoping that I don't hit the one called Easter Wings or something like that. I, <laughs> I, I, I don't necessarily have a particular order, but this week I landed on the poem called Pilgrimage. And I don't know if you know this poem, but I took it as a bit like Augustine would do, as a bit of divine providence to uh, think about this week, this, this idea of taking up our cross and journeying in relationship to Herbert's um, poem called The Pilgrimage. And so I want to read this for you. And I know reading poetry, I'm not necessarily great at it. And I know it taxes our listening ears in a, in a world in which we mostly just fill those with noise and sounds from music. But um, I would ask you just to listen here for a moment. It's not, not the shortest poem, but also not Herbert's longest by far. So again, it's just simply called The Pilgrimage. I traveled on seeing the hill where lay my expectation. Along it was and weary way, the gloomy cave of desperation I left on the one and on the other side the rock of pride. And so I came to fancy's meadow strode with many a flower. Fain would I here have made abode, but I was quickened by my hour. So to care's copse I came, and there got through with much ado. That led me to the wild of passion, which some called the wold, a wasted place, but sometimes rich. Here I was robbed 
of all my gold, save one good angel, which a friend had tid close by my side. At length I got unto the gladsome hill, where lay my hope, where lay my heart, and climbing still, when I had gained the brow and top, a lake of brackish waters on the ground was all I found. With that abashed and struck with many a sting of swarming fears, I fell and cried, alas, my king, can both the way and end be tears? Yet taking heart I rose and then perceived I was deceived. My hill was further, so I flung away, yet heard a cry just as I went, none goes that way and lives. If that be all, said I, after so foul a journey death is fair, and but a chair. Now this is not the first time I've actually read this poem in a service here. But again, I'm struck by its image of a journey that it begins with this pilgrim, right? And the pilgrim knows that there is a destination. He or she can see that there's a hill where lay my expectation. They know where they're going. This isn't this isn't a stroll that somehow will end somewhere and then someone will have to come back, right? Like when Christine and I went out for a walk today, uh, you know, where are we going? I don't know. I mean, we knew we would circle around to the house at some point, but how we would go, we had no particular idea at first. But this journey has a destination and it's there from the start. Perhaps even that destination is what motivated the journey to begin with. But immediately along the way, the journey becomes difficult. We have language, language like the cave of desperation, right, which uh, actually harkens to John Bunyan, which is another book with a pilgrimage theme, but the cave of def uh, desperation, the rock of pride, right, he comes to a meadow and he's tempted or she's tempted to stay there, it's, it looks good, but then like realizing that no, it would have been feigned to have remained there, it would have been purposeless to stay there, that was not the end of the journey, maybe a place to, to rest a bit, but not the end of the journey. So the pilgrim moves on, and then they come to the wild of passion, a wasted place. And there the pilgrim is robbed of what he or she has for the journey. The language here is robbed of their gold. They, someone has taken all that they have except their guardian angel, right? Which the poem, poem uh, nicely says has been tied close by my side. Right? And so finally, at length, after this difficult journey, the pilgrim finally ascends this hill. Right, And there lay my hope, where lay my heart, and climbing still when I had gained the brow and top. It was gorgeous, it was wonderful, it was all I had hoped for. No, a lake of brackish waters on the ground was all I found. You ever been out hiking somewhere and you think you're almost there? Right? You, you're convinced the top of the hill is just over maybe the next ridge or something like that. And I think I even shared this once from here. I remember hiking once in the Alps and I was convinced I could reach the top of this. You know, I was already number of thousands of feet up at a monastery and I went hiking above the monastery. And I thought, I can reach the top. I can reach the top. I never reached the top. I couldn't get there. And the further I got away from the monastery, I thought, yeah, I got to turn around and go back at some point. Right? But this pilgrim finds a lake of brackish waters. That's all they find. In other words, they had mistaken the end for just part of the journey. They thought they were there, but no one wants to hike to a brackish waters. 
or for those who do, I wouldn't understand it. That's not what you want to end on, right? Especially when the whole reason you began was because you understood the destination. You had an expectation of what that destination was going to be. So what did the pilgrim do? The only thing she could do, and that was to continue. With that abashed and struck with many a sting of swarming fears, I fell and cried, alas, my king, right? Can both the way and the end be tears? In other words, God, is this the end? Is this what you have for me? Is this the end of my journey, just to brackish waters? Yet, the pilgrim takes heart, the text tells us, stands up, perceives that they were deceived, and moves on. Right? Convinced that, no, this, this can't be what God would have for me. There must be more. There's got to be something beyond this. My hill was further, the text says, so I flung away. I love that. I don't know what that looks like, but I can imagine it, right? Flinging away to get to your destination. So next time you're on a hike, fling a little, right? So yet I heard a cry just as I went, and it's someone is saying, none goes that way and lives. In other words, that voice is almost saying, stay here, be satisfied with these brackish waters. And the pilgrim's response is, well, if that be all, after so foul a journey, death is fair and but a chair. Now that last line is debated what it means, but the point is, no, if, if, if I die along the way, right, if this is all there is, better to die along the way, that would be more fair than to simply be satisfied here with these brackish waters. And I, I imagine that, in fact, the pilgrim got to that destination. And I'm sure that destination was worth the journey. It wasn't a brackish waters. It was something more rich and more beautiful and worthy of such a difficult journey. And, and is that not Lent? <laughs> right? Do we not walk this way of the cross and then find ourselves on Monday, Thursday, being reminded that Jesus is betrayed, imprisoned, and then we get up on Friday or keep watch through the night and then come into this space on Good Friday and remind it that Jesus is nailed to the cross. Right? And again, we know the journey, but if we, if we have to put ourselves in the place of not knowing the end, would it not seem like, wow, is that what the journey was for? The death of Jesus Christ? What a terrible set of brackish waters to get to. Right? Wouldn't that be disappointing? Wouldn't you stand up and say, what is the point of my faith if this is the end? But we know it's not the end. And so we journey on through the holy days, anticipating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But because we know there's something further on, we're motivated to fling ourselves further on in the journey to make ourselves come to Easter morning and resurrection. But yet now, today, second Sunday of Lent, we are not there yet. We are still on that journey. Matter of fact, I would say we don't even know that we're going to be a bit deceived at first, right? We don't know that our destination is not actually the ultimate destination. If we, if we put ourselves in the mental landscape of taking this Lenten journey seriously, of, of taking these texts that we have before us today, which has the image of, of moving, of running, of walking, right? We're told in Genesis, walk before me and be blameless, right? The God of Abraham says to a 99-year-old Abraham, 
walk before me and be blameless. And I've said something like this to you before. If God simply said, walk before me, I probably would say, I can do that. Now be blameless. Yeah, that I can't do. Right, God, I'll walk, but blameless, that's something different. But no, Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. I'm going to make a covenant with you. You're going to be the father of a great nation. And, and matter of fact, that journey, that walk was going to be a lot longer than just Abraham himself. It was going to involve his descendants. And, and ultimately, it's a journey to the cross itself and to resurrection. And so walk before me and be blameless. And then Romans 4 picks up the story. Paul picks it up there and he says, No belief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God. Turns out Abraham did walk fairly blameless. His faith did not waver in the promise of God. He might not have been sinless. We know he wasn't, but yet he walked and did not waver because of that promise. But he grew strong in his faith, Paul tells us, as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That reminds me of the end of the pilgrimage, right? Don't go there. No one goes there. Well, if death is beyond it, that's just as good as remaining here. Abraham was able to keep moving forward because why? He was convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And then here in the Gospel of Mark, right? So again, these are out of the, the chronological order in which they were written. But Abraham walked before me, be blameless. Paul is able to look back in hindsight and say, Abraham walked before God blameless. He was convinced. He was faithful to God. And then we jump into the life of Jesus in Mark chapter 8, right? And, and Peter makes a poor decision and Jesus calls him aside and says, Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Another way to say that might be, Peter, you're not thinking right about the destination. You misunderstand what I am going to do. My journey will take me to the cross. And Peter can't handle that. He doesn't want to think about that. That's not what he wants from the Savior. Right? Peter has finally found someone worth following, and he doesn't want to lose him. Who would? Right? For in other words, and Peter, like, no, Following you is not going to take us to a brackish lake. Following you is not going to bring us to the penultimate point of happiness and glory. No. But instead, Jesus calls him aside and says, you're wrong. Why? Because unlike Abraham, you're not convinced. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but instead on the things of man. And so Jesus calls the crowds to him, probably assuming if Peter doesn't get it, no one gets it. I better get everyone together. Calls the crowds to him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There's that journey motif again. Take up your cross, follow me. What we just sang about, and we use this phrase a lot, take up your cross, take up your cross, and we think about it with the aches and pains of life. So glad that Adam Johnson is here tonight after having a bike wreck on Thursday, and he can show you in the corner of the gym if you want to hear a description of how bad the hip bruise is. And thankfully, unlike me, when I bike to work, I don't wear a helmet. Thankfully, Adam wore a helmet that is now cracked, broken, and needs to be replaced. But so glad he's here. But, you know, we sometimes think the aches and pains of life, that's my cross. Right? Marjorie is looking for gainful full-time employment right? And she's not finding it yet. And so that again is a kind of cross. And, and Megan can testify to that season of life just recently, 
right? So we do have these crosses, the aches and pains of wrecks and just getting old. I'd share that about myself. I'm just getting old. And so, you know, or we're out of work or school's difficult or job's not going like it is, or we're having problem with family and friends. And those are the crosses, right? But they're not the only crosses. Part of what it means to take up our cross, it's that long obedience in the same direction, at least that's the title I know of a Peterson book. I didn't know where he got it at, Eugene Peterson. But it is following Jesus along the long distance. It is having the view of the 99-year-old Abram, Abraham, who said, yes, I believe this, and I'm going to follow in obedience to God. And then having Paul be able to look back and say, yes, Abraham did do what he was called to do. He did follow his Lord and in doing this, the text tells us, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The word save there, you, we will be made whole if we simply take up our cross and follow Jesus. Right? Because if we don't take up our cross, then we're going to lose our life. But if we take up our cross and follow Jesus, we are given health and wholeness and healing. And we're made whole. We're saved. There is no prophet and not taking up our cross. This is not presented as an either or. It's presented as do this and get something or don't do it and have nothing. It's a terrible decision. It's the kind of decisions I sometimes give my, give my kids. Do this or just get in trouble. Right? The, it's rhetorical. It's not really a set of options. It's mostly like I know you're going to do this because the consequences will be unpleasant if you don't. Right? So as we walk through Lent, as we, as we think about what it means to be pilgrims on the way, we reflect on the fact that this journey is not easy. Life is not easy. And I don't want to presume that it is for any of us. We all go through the ups and downs of life, the expected and the unexpected. We suffer the consequences of our good and bad decisions. We suffer the consequences of other people's good and bad decisions. So in that sense, we are carrying our cross, but the cross is life as well. To carry the cross faithfully means to be saved, to be made whole. So really, this isn't an option. And I kind of feel like Jesus also knew it wasn't an option to take up his cross. That's why he calls Peter aside and say, get behind me, Satan. This is what's going to happen. Now, I do believe when Jesus was praying in the garden that he meant, when he said to his father, take this cross from me, find another way. I do believe that Jesus would have been happy if God the Father could have said, there's another way. Yet, what did he say after that? But not my will but yours. And that's the perspective we need to have during Lent as we, as we are on this difficult journey, our Lenten journey, which is perhaps difficult in a way different than our normal journey of taking up our cross. So it's kind of Lent as the taking up our cross within a life of taking up our cross. As we, as we go this difficult way like the pilgrim, we know Lenten's, from a Lenten perspective that we're going to end at a set of brackish waters Right, the imprisonment and ultimate death of Jesus Christ. But we know there's something beyond that. And we journey to those places, not running to get around it, but walking to be found blameless. Walking the way of the cross, taking up our cross and carrying it so that we can find life and be saved. In other words, it's a journey worth taking. It's what the pilgrim says at the end, right? 
Don't go there. No one goes that way and lives. If that be all, says the pilgrim, after so foul a journey, death is fair. That is the perspective we must have about walking the Lenten way, about walking in life, taking up our cross daily, following Jesus, dealing with, again, the ups and the downs, the difficulties, the moments of ease in our life, and doing it in a Christological way, doing it like Jesus does it, necessarily and with joy because we know that it's worth it. And so as we think about the short distance we've already traveled during this Lenten journey, may we set our sights on the ultimate end. May we set our sights on that expectation that we have of where this Lenten journey is going to end. And let us walk well to get there. Let us, let us journey forward. Let us, let us meet these sins and these temptations along the way. And let us, let us realize that even though it may look like the end is death, that the end is actually life. And we do it by asking God to strengthen us for the journey. We do it because we know that God is empowering us to do it. You ask a 99-year-old man to do something, he's going to have to be strengthened by God to do it. You ask us, sinful, broken people that we are, to do it, and we're going to need assistance to do it. And so we ask God through this Lent to give us more of himself through his Holy Spirit, the grace that comes by way of the sacrament. And we journey forth, carrying our cross daily, knowing that there at our destination is Jesus waiting for us. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.